Danielle O'Hearn was lauded as a hero. Pictured here in the center of this picture, she is a firefighter and a mother of five who lives in Somerville, Massachusetts. And one day, Danielle and her crew were called to a home that was engulfed in flames. And seniors, a number of seniors, were living and trapped on the second floor. And from a ladder, perched on a ladder, Danielle was able to extract safely a number of residents from that building, except for one man. He remained on the balcony and he was paralyzed with fear. He could not move. And recognizing the danger of this moment in, in, a, in a split second decision, Danielle jumped off of the ladder onto the balcony, grabbed the man, and jumped off with him off the balcony. They landed on a shed below and both walked away with relatively minor bumps and bruises. Well, the next day, the media wanted to talk to Danielle, the hero. And she seemed to shrug off what she had done. She said this, in the split second, it's muscle memory. You just figure out what you have to do and you do it. I had to jump. Friends, what is it that enables frontline responders, first responders like Danielle, to enter a situation which is dangerous, which is life-threatening, and somehow to have the composure and the clear thinking to respond in such a, a helpful way, in ways that you and I may not be able to do because we might be overwhelmed in that moment. Well, according to Danielle and others, the reason they can do this is practice. It's training. It's muscle memory. Muscle memory tells us that if you practice something enough, your body will just know what to do, even if your emotions might overwhelm you. Maybe this story tells us that courage is not just an act conjured up in a moment of crisis, but maybe behind that courage is a practice. It's a habit. It's a way of practicing and training ourselves to respond in a certain way. And maybe the same could be said for resilience. We're in the middle of a series uh, on talking about resilient faith, and we've looked at a number of characters, Abraham and, um, now I'm gonna th struggle thinking about them, Jacob, and we've looked at how they've, they've wrestled with with waiting and wrestling and doubts. And last week we looked at Elijah who was wrestling with burnout. And yet in the midst of those crises, God met them and enabled them to persevere, to bounce back. And today we're gonna look a little bit at the story of Daniel who's known and regarded as someone who was able to stand strong in a moment of testing. And yet, as we're gonna see, there are certain practices, there are certain habits that were cultivated in Daniel that enabled him to respond in such a way. The story of Daniel is found in Daniel chapter six. You're welcome to turn there on your devices or in your Bible or to follow along. Now, just before we get into this, 
let me share with you a little context of who Daniel is. When Daniel was a teenager, his hometown of Jerusalem, the great city, was besieged and conquered by the big bad Babylonians. And they leveled it, including the temple, the very temple of God, the heart of God's people, you know, their, their worship and devotion. This was devastating. And many were exiled to Babylon. And to rub salt in the wound, uh, some of the brightest and best, including Daniel and his friends, were actually conscripted to serve at the new king's pleasure, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now think about this just for a moment. You're a teenager. You're taken captive. You're removed from your home, the things that are familiar to you, the relationships of support all around you. You're cut off from all of that. You're planted in a strange land. You're trained in a foreign education system. You're under constant pressure to assimilate, to forsake your identity, and you're being trained to serve the very one who conquered you. And the story of Daniel in the scriptures is remarkable because Daniel remains faithful to the one true living God. He neither isolates nor assimilates and yet he remains faithful. And I think it's a beautiful story to remember what it's like to live in a culture that doesn't care or share your spiritual values. And as we pick up the story, Daniel is now about 80 years old. Verse three, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Let me just pause there for a moment. And you know what politicians do at around an election? They dig up dirt on each other, right? It's part of the sport of politics. They run negative campaigns and ads, and they're always able to find some dirt on their opponents, right? But not so with Daniel. They, they can't find anything. Speaks of his incredible character. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with, his law, with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being other, during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree, put it into writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. And now the trap is set. Here, Daniel faces an incredible threat, 
an incredibly difficult decision. Either he remains faithful to God and is fed to hungry lions, or he caves in. He is facing a crisis. And this story really tells us about what you do in a crisis. Where do you turn? Where do you turn in the midst of a threat? Now, I know in a congregation like this today, there are some of you who are experiencing threats, threats to your health. Maybe you've received a diagnosis or a loved one has, and that sits with you and you carry that, and that causes great concern to you and uncertainty. I know that some of you are facing a threat to your financial well-being. And perhaps at night you lie awake because you just don't know how you're going to make ends meet. What is it that keeps you up at night and poses a threat for you? Or maybe like my neighbor recently found out, she got that awful letter from her landlord saying that he was gonna renovate and she had to move. Or the landlord says, I'm gonna sell the home. And, and you think that this, this was the one thing that was secure for me, that was, was keeping me here. And I have no idea where I'm gonna turn now. Or maybe there's a crisis in your life in a relationship with a son or a daughter or a parent or a spouse or a roommate. And even this morning, thinking about that relationship feels heavy. It concerns you. What do you do? Where do you turn in a crisis? And this story helps us to remember where Daniel turned in the middle of his crisis. Let's read it, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. For a few moments, I I just want to explore kind of two layers to Daniel's response. And I think it tells us something about resilient faith. First, what is Daniel's go-to response in a crisis? Where does he turn? And second, what's the specific practice that he that he began or that he continues? It says that he gave thanks to his God. Seems a little counterintuitive in a crisis to give thanks, and yet we're going to explore that. But first, let's look at how resilient faith turns to God first in a time of crisis. Three times a day, for probably 70 years, Daniel has faced Jerusalem and prayed. And now in a crisis, muscle memory kicks in and Daniel just knows what to do. Do you see it? Do you see the background of the habit, how he has programmed and shaped his heart to turn to God in a crisis, in a threat. The the psalmist said, I 
I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You know, sometimes we're tempted when we face a crisis to try to solve it on our own. And then when we run out of ideas or resources, then we say to ourselves, okay, I'm really desperate. Now I will turn to the Lord. And yet Daniel has programmed his heart through a series of practices over time to turn to God. He, he did it in chapter one when the story tells us that he was pressured to eat forbidden foods. He did it in chapter two of Daniel when the king was gonna kill someone who didn't, anyone who couldn't interpret his dreams. His friends did it in chapter three when they were forced, they were pressured to bow down to a fiery image. Do you see the resilience in Daniel is, can actually be understood by looking back at the practices that he cultivated in his life for years. Now, I know that you may be listening to this and say, wow, three times, three times a day for 70 years, that's incredible discipline, and I just don't have that discipline. I'm not very structured. I don't have those kinds of habits. Fair enough. Um, but I, but I, would, I would suggest to you that we actually all have habits that we cultivate on a daily basis. This morning, like me, you probably stumbled into your kitchen uh, and made a cup of coffee or tea. Um, you probably brushed your teeth. You probably took a shower and did these things, made your bed, these things that you actually have practiced over and over and over. Maybe you don't think about it very much. But in the same way, the invitation here is, how can we practice turning to the Lord in in all days. And there are life-giving practices, we know, that if you keep them in the good times, if you keep them, then in the bad times, they will keep you. Let me say that again. When it comes to life-giving practices, in the, if in the good times you keep them, then in the bad times, they will keep you. There's this interesting thing when you go onto the Google search uh, website, perhaps you've seen this, it's called autocomplete. You type in a search and Google remembers things that you've searched before. And it suggests previous searches. It suggests other things that other people have searched. And in many ways, what we know is that our heart has a kind of autocomplete that in a moment of stress or crisis or threat, our heart auto-completes how we might respond. Psychologists tell us that we have the most common responses are flight, fight, or freeze. And perhaps you can reflect on what you do in a crisis. To, to, to flee a crisis is really to move as far away from you can as, as far as away from it as you can to medicate it to drown it in alcohol to lose yourself in something else netflix or or social media to just get as much distance cuz it's too difficult to deal with or there's the fight response now i i resonate with this fight response and here's how it shows up in my life is I'm a problem solver. I like problems. 
Uh, if I do a personality test, it always says you're a problem solver. I think that if I roll up my sleeves and I give it enough time and enough hard work, I can overcome that crisis. I'm a DIY kind of guy when it comes to anything in my home, I think I can fix. And I always overestimate what I can do. Um, common situation is my wife Brandy will say, the washing machine is broken, can you call a technician? And I think to myself, why would I pay $300 to get somebody to do something that I could do for free over the next four to six months? <laughs> and then I call the technician. I recently completely took apart our coffee maker because it wasn't working, and I was convinced I would be able to fix it. 15 minutes later, I was on Amazon ordering a new coffee maker. <laughs> do, you, do you recognize this impulse of, of, in a crisis, I can manage it, I can fix it, I'll be able to solve it? Maybe like that gentleman who stood on the balcony, we can shut down when we're in a crisis. We can feel waves of fear and anxiety, and we don't know what to do. But the story of Daniel teaches us that we can program our hearts in small ways to turn to the Lord first, to turn to the Lord first. And second, this story tells us that resilient faith chooses thanksgiving. In a crisis, it chooses thanksgiving. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home and he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God. Why in the world would Daniel give thanks in such a terrible situation? Have you ever thought about that? Giving thanks when you're faced with an impossible decision and a crisis? You know, giving thanks in a crisis is the most counterintuitive thing that you can do. And yet, it might be the most important. When we are facing a threat or a crisis or a problem, we can tend to get hyper-focused on how to solve it, how to fix it, what it is. And giving thanks reminds us to lift our hearts and our heads to God. It doesn't mean we deny the pain, but it puts it in a broader context for us, a bigger context of God's love and care and presence in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Notice that it doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It says give thanks in all circumstances. You may, be have, you may be walking through something right now that looms large in your heart and you don't particularly feel thankful for it. I get it. But what the scriptures is telling us is that we can choose. We can give thanks in 
the midst of those circumstances and so lift our hearts and our heads to God. Gordon Smith was a former, a former professor of mine and he attended this and was part of this 10th community for many years. And he tells a story of living in the Philippines and going through a very difficult and depressing season of his life. And he says that something that soothed that depression, that, that sustained him, was that every morning he would make himself a cup of coffee and he would go for a walk around the block and he would think of 10 things to be grateful to God for. And he said that, first, that those first 10 things were pretty intuitive and came pretty quickly and easily. He would come home, pour himself another cup of coffee, and go for a second walk around the block. And he would begin to speak out things in gratitude, giving thanks to God. And he said that that time was a little bit harder. I had to dig a little bit more. They were less obvious things. And then you guessed it. He came back home and poured himself a third cup of coffee, the resilient drink coffee. Uh, and he went for another round of giving thanks. And he said, this was the toughest of all. And over the days and weeks, I found myself giving thanks in the midst of hardships, in the, mix, in the midst of painful things I was walking through. And yet, I was able to see that God was present to me in that. That God was in those circumstances with me, and I, I practiced giving thanks, and it was a transformative experience for me. Some of you know that um, <clears throat> last year in 2021, I lost my dad. And he had journeyed with dementia for the, the last few years of his life. And I remember a doctor's appointment. As a family, we, we were really, really reflecting on all of the losses, the, the diminishing memory, mental faculties. And that's kind of what we saw. And it was difficult, we were grieving that. And there was a doctor's appointment where the doctor confirmed the diagnosis of dementia. And it was difficult to hear that. And being aware of how we were feeling as a family, the doctor very gently and empathetically said something like this. You know, this is the journey that you're walking through with Ed. Every family is journeying through something some families journey with chronic pain or addiction or estrangement, and this happens to be your journey. But you are blessed because you're doing this together. Because as I look at Ed, I see his family, which has surrounded him. I see his grandkids. I see friends. I see a supportive community. You're blessed. And she got down on her knees and went right up to my dad and said, Ed, how's your memory? And my dad smiled and said, pretty good. <laughs> and then she said, Ed, are you happy? And my dad with a smile on his face said, yes, I'm happy. And there was something about that experience of going in so focused on the loss and the difficulty and not feeling very hopeful that, 
that that doctor helped us to reframe and to see what was going on in a bigger and broader context. She could see things that, that we couldn't see and somehow, somehow something shifted in us and we became more hopeful. The doctor said to us, make the most of this time. And we endeavored to do that. Sometimes giving thanks transforms our perspective and we see things in a broader context. And it's that moment of lifting our hearts and heads and giving thanks to God in all circumstances that can transform us. You know, as a problem solver, I can go from problem to problem trying to solve them. But maybe, maybe God's got a different agenda. Maybe if I look to God to solve my problems, God is using the problems for me to see him. Maybe God is, is meeting us in the very heart and the midst of our threats and our crises and our difficulties. And he's making himself known to us in those places. In a moment, we're going to conclude the service by practicing a habit. It's, we call it communion. Another word for it is the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is a Greek word that means giving thanks. So think about this, friends. Every week, we conclude our worship service with a habit, a practice of giving thanks, of lifting our hearts and our heads to God in the middle of whatever we're going through. Now, the, the story of Daniel is beautiful and inspiring and helpful, but I think it is more than that. The story of Daniel points us to another Daniel, a greater Daniel, Jesus Christ. Like Daniel, Jesus lived an exemplary life. And like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused and like Daniel, he was sentenced to death. And yet, this story of the gospel reminds us that it's the cross, which is a symbol of pain and shame and suffering, and it is a symbol of crisis. And friends, get this. It's in a crisis that God does his greatest work of all. It's in the middle of the crisis that God's glory, that God's grace shines brightest. And so my invitation to you in a few moments, you're gonna come forward and practice thanksgiving. And do so in light of the cross, that crisis moment. And bring with you whatever it is you're walking through that weighs heavy on your heart and give thanks to God trusting that his greatest work is done in the middle of your crisis. Let's pray together. So living God, I invite you to speak to us now. I invite you to bring to our mind something in our life that we're walking through that we're not particularly thankful for.
we don't feel thankful for. And friends, just take a moment to listen to how God might speak to you and bring some situation or relationship to mind. And Lord, as we practice a habit of thanksgiving, give us hope that your greatest work is done in the heart of a crisis. In Christ's name we pray, amen.